This is episode 12 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Go back to your reference. I used to type. Yeah. When did you change, and what did you change well, to? Didn't we? Didn't typewriters disappear? <laughs> I mean, I think. I think. Uh, I've never been good. I have. I have dictated, but I'm not good at dictating. Well, how do you do it now? How do you write now? Handwrite. I write everything. Every, write everything longhand, which is very valuable for me. First of all, it's it forces you to slow down. You see, with the, with the speech uh, with the typewriter. You could bang out a speech in an hour. Do you do it in a pen or a pencil? A pen. And what happens is, so I will write a draft in longhand, and it's pretty messy. And I have a long-suffering, marvelous typist in Kansas who has been, actually taught me how to use a computer, um, very limited command that I have, um, when I went out to Lawrence in 2001. And um, and we've been working together ever since. She's typed everything, and including the Rockefeller book, which, you know, 882 pages, and as I say, no chapter of that book went through fewer than 50 drafts, which is, on the face of it, absurd. What does that mean, 50 drafts? Well, it means that most chapters in TypeScript would run between 30 and 40 pages. Type 30 or 40 pages times 50, and then times 30, which is, you know, the number of chapters in the... But when you take a... Uh, you've written a chapter and you're going to rewrite it, how long does that take? Have you, you 50 times? Yeah, see, that, see that's what I'm... Yeah, my point is, it's absurd, um, but that book was unlike anything I... any other project I've ever done. Now, the Ford book that I'm working on now, for example is just as deeply researched and hopefully uh, written with as much care for some sense of literary style and narrative flow, all of those things, hopefully that you bring to anything. Um, but it's, I hate to use the word workmanlike, but the process so far has been much more, well, smoother, um, Linear, I guess, is is probably the best word. Um, the Rockefeller, it just it seemed to take forever, and 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 that was because not so much the the writing process, but the mental process. You have to remember, you know, I was fourteen years old in the floor demonstration in Miami in nineteen sixty eight, carrying my Rockefeller sign. Now, in some ways, that gave me a leg up. But in some ways, that was real baggage. You had to work, I had to work my way through the residual memory, the sort of uncritical admiration, um, to something much, much more rigorous, much more critical. And then you had to make sure you didn't go too far in the opposite extreme, in the, in the pursuit of, quote, objectivity, in the pursuit of detachment, in the pursuit of critical assessment, becoming overly critical. Hey, have you read? Have you read a biography of every president? You know, I think I probably have. 
the reason I ask you that question is, can you tell when a historian is on a side? Oh, sure. Well, stop and think. It's not just that subject. Well, most nonfiction authors are drawn to subjects that they're not only interested in, but in some sense are attracted to. I mean... Is it a love-hate thing? You, well, I you, mean... I mean, you could love there's something... There's a finite number of people who are of such a temperament or psychology as to derive satisfaction from butchering a life or a reputation. Um, I mean, how many people get up every morning and say, today, with a smile on their face, I'm going to write about someone I detest? Name an example of a book that's been written that you knew that an author detested them, the individual. Oh, gosh, now we're getting... Uh, I don't want to be contemporary <laughs> because because they're authors I admire and and work I admire greatly, but um, there there are clearly there are authors that are clearly partisans. Revisionist history. This is a terrible generalization. Stop and think of the motivation behind revisionist history, whether it's the left or the right, you know, whatever. Um, it's motivated by the fervent belief that someone has that the conventional story is all wrong, that the historians and the biographers have either overlooked something or distorted something, uh, or maybe I have access to new information. i tell you someone I admire, who, who's, for example, um, Gene Strauss spent 14 years writing a biography of J.P. Morgan. It's a, it's a brilliant book. And it's a tortured book because she wrote a book, or the, as I understand it, the better part of a book about J.P. Morgan, and then she had the intellectual honesty and the and the unflinching um, integrity, having done all of that work, to conclude that what she had written was fundamentally at variance with the J.P. Morgan who who she was discovering by going in a systematic, thorough way through his papers and, and through material that had not been utilized in the past. She was willing to revise her revisionism, in effect. And um, that that's, you know, you, you've got to admire people like that. I mean, there aren't a lot of people like that. Anyway, so the consequence was, it took her 14 years to write this book, which um, I think is universally uh, regarded as the definitive work, on a on a very... Look, she, she was willing to accept complexity and nuance. That, uh, Morgan is is one of the classic Gilded Age plutocrats who invite caricature. I mean, he was a caricature himself. You look at the pictures and, you know, the famous red, red, red nose, you know, uh, that he, 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 uh, medical condition. Um, the, it's been retouched 
in some pictures. Um, and, I mean, he looks like an ogre. And, um, and for years we thought, the very term robber baron, there's a whole category of post-Civil War, larger-than-life capitalists. John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, um, Henry Clay Frick. I mean, you know, the people we love to hate. And for a very long time, and there's a whole school of history. There's a book in 1934 by Matthew Josephson called The Robber Barons, and it appeared at the depths of the Great Depression. And it, it, was, it was just, it caught on. It, it was a, the perfect book for the time. It posited at a time when big business was at the absolute nadir of its popular reputation. And, and so all these years later, I mean, there's a classic example of how one book can have incredible, enduring, long after people have forgotten the book or the title, um, but the robber bear, just as Mark Twain gave his name, The Gilded Age, it's, it's a minor comic novel that nobody would read today. Nobody does read, except because The Gilded Age has, has come to uh, define the period between the Civil War and the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so in any event, someone like, I mean, it goes back to the monkish nature of writing. Think of the bravery that that took, the intellectual guts that it, that it, that it showed, um, to say, I'm going to devote my life to this project and to reach a point in the project with all the passion and all the commitment, intellectual emotional, physical, that it requires, and then halfway along to say, you know, I've got this wrong. I've got to start over. And, and not only that, but to then take responsibility for the rather radically different portrait, the portrait that emerges, which is much richer, much fuller, but 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 different from the classic Robert Barron that we're accustomed to reading about. What role do reviewers play in the sale of books? You know, I I think it's a, there's a dynamic field. It is a minor tragedy that there are a lot fewer book sections. Minor tragedy. It, well, I'm, I'm, to most people, it's a minor tragedy. Uh, maybe it's a, a major tragedy to me. Um, Obviously, there are fewer newspapers. The newspapers that survive are shorter. They've had to make decisions about uh, their priorities. And unfortunately, one of the first things to go has been book reviews sections. Um, now, you, obviously, there are compensating factors. There are uh, any number of online reviewers, and I don't mean for a moment to dismiss their significance. Um one, I'll tell you the one one trend, at least I've noticed, and I'm particularly sensitive because for reasons that will be obvious. Every book I've written has been based on original research, and I mean not hours and hours, but years and years of sitting in an archive, you know, never employing a research assistant, sitting in archives, going through boxes of paper, I mean, maybe it's a weakness. It's the only way I know how to do. And not consciously looking for um, undiscovered facts, but, but being open, being open to them, because 
they may call into question what you think you know about about your subject. Okay. I give you an example. The most recent book I published, uh, 14 Years in the Making, a big biography of Nelson Rockefeller, full of newly revealed, you know, political slash historical details, stories that hadn't been told. Uh, I mean, you know, and it's very interesting. Not a single, and, and there were excellent reviews. There were generous reviews. I'm not criticizing, but I noticed there was virtually, I don't think anyone mentioned the fact, let alone any of the individual facts, that, that there was all of this new information. It just went absolutely, you know, under the radar. And I, I sensed that, because I read a lot of reviews, obviously, and I write reviews. Um, and it, it just seems as if that's an element of of notice um, that has has vanished. Well, because you said you write reviews, <clears throat> what's your own philosophy of how you treat an author? Oh, I tell you. Well, I, I that's I feel strongly because I've been through the process. First of all. You know, the easiest thing in the world, whether it's a theater review or a book review or anything, you know, is, you know, you can write gags. You can always think of nasty things to say that may very well be quoted and, and get you some, some recognition. Um, and I always tell myself, you know, I put myself or I try to put myself, and it's not hard, in the position of the author who I don't care if the book is good or bad, I don't care if it succeeds or doesn't. I'll address that. But you've got to take seriously the effort that an author has put. You've got to try at the outset to see what he's getting at. Now, whether whether he succeeds or not is another is another matter. You, I guess what I'm saying is. You've got to give an author a benefit of the doubt, and and that that may seem um, unduly generous. Uh, I mean, I have no trouble being critical, but I think, you know, I tend, first of all, to be a cheerleader for books, and for serious books, and above all, for serious books written for a popular audience, which is a diminishing category and which needs all the all the cheerleading, you know, that they that they can get. So um, the books that tend to come my way, uh, for I mean, I get lots of books about presidents. Um, um, and just in the last year, for the Wall Street Journal, I've um, reviewed a, a couple of books about Eleanor Roosevelt and a big biography about Speaker McCormick, John McCormick, which which I thought succeeded less as biography, although it was a fine biography. Than as an encyclopedia of congressional history during you know much of the 20th century, it was an extraordinary sort of source work. If I would say any any student of congressional history in the 20th century, be sure and look at this book. You you'll be you'll you'll find riches uh, in it. Um, I tend to look for the good. Um, I tend to shy away because I as a as a as a youngster. I was cursed, in some ways, cursed with a sharp tongue, 
and the ability. Uh, I, my family was a very unusual one in, in many ways. Uh, we were very verbal. And, um, uh, and unfortunately, it, it was the classic survival of the fittest. Uh, dinner every evening was an exercise in social Darwinism. Um, How many the, were sitting around the table? You were sitting around the table. How many? Oh, well, seven when we were all there, which is a lot of people. And it was, it was there was kind of cut and throw. I mean, there weren't. I don't know what other people talk about around the dinner table, but but we we sharpened our wits. And um, I had an, an older sister who had a similar sense of humor in some ways. Um, and then, unfortunately, I had other siblings who were different, um, who were often victims. And, it, it, you know, things you regret, you know, when you get older. Um, you can always think of people you, 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 you should have been nicer to. Uh, and, and some of that begins around the dinner table. And so, fortunately, I guess, better late than never, I think it sensitized me to the fact that, you know, most people are entitled. If you're passing judgment, not on them, but on their work. They're entitled to have you make a heroic effort to understand, to put yourself in their shoes, to understand what it was about this subject that they thought warranted all of the time and the effort and the energy and the emotion and the passion because uh, I guarantee you, all of those factors are at work. And the fact that somebody cared enough to do this makes it worth taking seriously. Uh, and that doesn't preclude constructive, I emphasize, constructive criticism. Um, but but it's, it all comes about empathy. It's the same quality that you bring, hopefully, to whatever you are working on. I mean, how can you possibly, possibly imagine recreating a life that you never lived, that you're reconstructing through papers and, and interviews and newspaper clippings and whatever skills of perception and deduction um, that you bring to this process if you do not have empathy? You have always been a big fan of anniversaries. Well, I guess any historian would welcome the opportunity to remind people that there is a past. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.